0: Amen. I want to invite you to have a seat this morning. As you do, I want to welcome you. It really is a joy to be worshiping uh, with, with each of you and making much of our Lord and Savior. Uh, he is worthy of honor, and uh, we're going to look at that again a little bit more in depth this morning. Um, before we jump into our text, though, I do want to dismiss Hubtown Kids. So if you're uh, ages 3 up to 5th grade and you want to be a part of uh, what's going on in Hubtown Kids this morning, you can head forward uh, now uh, to my left are going to be ages 3 to 5, and that's going to be with uh, Mr. Chuck and Mrs. Paula. And uh, they are part of uh, the uh, Blue Station. They're going to be learning some great things this morning. But if you're ages 6 to 5th grade, you're going to go to my right, and everybody just gets up and leaves. I know some of you are, th- are worried that you could go. You, maybe you think you might be safer in there, but I rest assured I'll take good care of you in here. I don't have pretzels and uh, apple juice, but, uh, but we'll make it through somehow. You heard uh, you heard our uh, our brother Brad talk about what what uh, Hubtown Kids Gray Station is going to be learning this morning, and I want to just go ahead and throw this out there as well because I, I don't want you to ever forget that it's not their job to teach our kids about Jesus. It's not their job. It's your job to do that, and uh, and so we want to find ways to. To help you do that, and uh, and by the way, if you don't have any kids here this morning, well, uh, the pressure's not off of you. Uh, you still have some pressure on you because as a church, God has called each of us to, to strengthen and edify and, and challenge and help the rest of us. And so, one of the ways you can do that practically, how many of you guys like practical handles? How can how we can put our hands uh, on and just get a, you know, get get a grip and start to move forward? I'm sure that you do. One of the ways you can do that is by asking our kiddos. This question, how and why did God create us? How and why did God create us? It's been a joy to ask kids these types of questions. Every week we introduce a new question to them, and it's been a lot of fun to try to stump them. And honestly, I've not been able to stump them, nor have we been able to stump the kids that aren't even in that class. They're learning, the younger kids are learning anyway. Here's how. God created us, male and female, in his image to glorify him. So how and why did God create us? God created us male and female in his image to glorify him. So if you see a kid this afternoon, maybe in your life group, uh, maybe, at, uh, your, uh, maybe at your school group sometime throughout the week, you might want to just ask him, hey, how and why did God create us? And if you forget the answer, you can text me. Uh, but let's move on. By God's providence, we are uh, finding ourselves in Mark. A long chapter, but it's been full of, of great information. Last week we left Jesus in the hands of his captors, those who would arrest him. We left him there. He had just finished praying with, or they were sleeping. He was praying, and now he's been arrested, led by a band. Uh, leading the band of arresters was Judas himself, one of the twelve. Think about the state that Jesus finds himself in this morning. I think of this, Isaiah 53, verse 3, speaking of our Lord and Savior as a prophecy, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This morning we begin to see a little bit more, colored it a little more in depth, what the despising of Jesus prophesied long ago by Isaiah. You get to see a little clearly what that was actually going to look like. To despise simply means to regard as negligible or worthless. To despise, to regard as negligible or worthless. This morning, we'll see a group of people known as the Sanhedrin. They'll, they'll demonstrate what it looks like to truly despise someone. And remember, it's a fulfillment of the Isaiah passage. If you think about it, to despise is a position of the heart. In a sense, it's the act of the eye, right? You can despise somebody with your eyes, but it doesn't just end there. To despise someone is a position of the heart. It's an act, in a sense, of the eye but it never stays there. It always progresses to something much worse. We might despise someone in our hearts, but we dishonor them with our lips. We dishonor them with our hands. To dishonor its really part and parcel with despising. It means to to treat in a degrading manner. To dishonor is the application of of despising someone. Remember, it's an act of the heart. Despising is... Dishonor is an act of the lip or even of the hand. The opposite of all of these things, of despising and dishonor, would, of course, be to honor Jesus himself, the Son of God, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, our Creator. He does not deserve to be despised. He does not deserve to be dishonored. No, in fact, he deserves to be honored. He deserves to be regarded with admiration and respect, to say it lightly. So here's my main idea. I believe it's the main idea of the text underlying all of this. As we see Jesus dishonored, as we see him despised, we see that's not how it's supposed to be. So, this idea rising to the top in my mind is this May Jesus be honored on earth as he is in heaven. May Jesus be honored on earth as he is in heaven. In our sinfulness, in our weakness, Jesus appears to us as a man unworthy of affection and honor. But here's the good part. As the Spirit of God opens our eyes, we begin to see him a little bit more like heaven sees him. Not despised, not rejected. No, rather honored above all things. That's how the Scriptures portray him to us. That's how the heavens declare. Let's see what the Scriptures have to say about this group, Mark chapter 14 verses 53 to 72 if you want to follow along in your copy uh, it should be somewhere around page uh, 10 12 10, uh, 10 13 in the black copy in front of you you can also read it on the screen or use your own copy here's what the word of god says and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some people, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I know, I neither know or understood what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders began again to say to Peter, Certainly you are one of them. You are a Galilean. And began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. It's the reading of his word. Father, we do this every week. We pause after the reading of your scriptures and we ask that you do a work that we cannot do in ourselves. Father, we ask that you illuminate your scriptures to our hearts and to our eyes. Father, we pray that you would draw us to Jesus in a way that he logic and understanding is weak. May we see him lifted up this morning. Father, may we see him the hero and not ourselves. May we not despise Peter, but may we honor Christ. And we ask that all these things be done in your name. Amen. This morning, I want to point out three things. We've got the Sanhedrin that are gathering, and I want to show you the Sanhedrin's hatred for Jesus demonstrated in three different ways. They despised Jesus, and their despising of Jesus led them to dishonor Jesus in three areas. The first is integrity. They dishonored him in his integrity. They hated him so much, they wanted to speak against his integrity. They don't stop there, though. They try to destroy his integrity and move on to his own identity, the true identity as the Son of God. They'd like to disprove that. They'd like to destroy that. So they move from his integrity to his identity, and they end with attempting to destroy his body. First place I want us to look at is in verse 55, as we try to understand this dishonoring of his integrity. The Scriptures say that now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. I want to just help you understand what's taking place here. The chief priests and the whole council, this is the the Sanhedrin Sanhedrin is a group of 70 Jewish leaders, 70 priests and scribes, leaders that would come together. If you would, think of them as the the high Supreme Court uh, in Israel. It's the Supreme Court in a sense. Here Jesus is paraded before them. It says it's taking place at night, which, by the way, is illegal for them to do so. It's not only illegal for them to meet at night, but it's illegal for them to be meeting on a feast day, which both of them are, are taking place, so they're breaking the law, their own law. They should be brought before the Sanhedrin, but there's not much left of it. Speaking of what's left of it, it's nighttime, and perhaps not all of them are there. We know this, that in order for the Sanhedrin to actually accomplish any sort of business, they would have to have a quorum, similar to a Baptist church, right? business meetings what is the quorum for the for the 70 well it's only 23 and so we know at least 23 perhaps all of them are gathered there this night for this illegal activity this illegal trial of Jesus Christ they're seeking a testimony against him you might have heard the idea of an embrace here in the United States of America and that is that justice is blind right well, not justice in the Sanhedrin, not in the first century, not as it, not on this particular night as Jesus is dragged before them. No, they in themselves are seeking a testimony against Jesus, and the way that this is worded helps us to understand that their intentions are quite dishonest. They're not trying to give Jesus a fair trial. They're gathering in the cover of darkness with evil intentions, and as Judas had premeditated. Yet in all of their seeking it says that they were not able to find a testimony against Jesus. Remember back in Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says the prophecy of Jesus. It says that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Here's the idea Jesus is blameless. Jesus doesn't need to defend himself verbally. Though attacks come at him, they are unable to stick to him. Things that are said of Jesus don't actually stick. It's interesting, pastors in the local church, this might be helpful for you to know. I know this all too well. But you should as well. Pastors, the Bible says, are to be blameless. What does that mean? They're to be sinless? Well, of course not. But it does mean this that when accusations are are brought against them, they should not make sense, they should not stick. It should be hard for you to actually believe something that's brought against a pastor. And so if you have a pastor now or in the future that really is not blameless in the sense that accusations actually stick against them, then they're not to be called a pastor. Why? Because they are under shepherds, under our main shepherd, our chief shepherd. And what is he? He is blameless. When he's on trial, truth cannot be brought against him, but only for him. It says that many bore false Against him. They couldn't find true testimony, but they would find lies. And so they did. And they paraded these liars before the court. The court requested that the liars show up, perhaps even bribed them and paid some of them. And here they are. And it's interesting. Even their testimonies, though, they didn't agree. They would get many to come in there and parade around and testify against Jesus, but what's interesting is they couldn't even get their story straight. It's pretty important in The Jewish law. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 17. If you're taking notes, that would be a great uh, uh, passage to to jump back into and do a little bit of study against. It says in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong and correction with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established." If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in the office in that day. And so we see, they're abiding by rules, trying to get hey, they're trying to get two witnesses to corroborate here, but they can't get two people to say the same thing against Jesus. That's so what we end up finding is in this kangaroo court, as it's been called, all attempts to accuse Jesus are failing. And so we see the integrity of Jesus. It's impeccable. In all his existence, from eternity past unto eternity future, Jesus has never one time disobeyed the will of the Father. Just think about that just for a moment. Contrast your own life. Compare yourself to Jesus just for a moment. Jesus, for all of eternity past and future, has never one time disobeyed the will of the Father. As he walked this earth, for 33, for 33 years, he never said, did, or thought anything against the will of God the Father. He was impeccable. He was the spotless lamb. And yet that didn't stop them from impugning his character and attacking his integrity. And in that way, they surely dishonored the Lord Jesus Christ. But they couldn't find anything to bring him down as far as his integrity he hadn't kicked any dogs or, or stepped on, uh, pinched any kids or, or stole any funds. And so they went on. They shifted tactics. And they began to dishonor his identity. Look at verses 60 to 40. In verse 60 particularly, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked them, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But again, he remained silent with no answer. Remember, that's in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. The the high priest then shifts gears and says, again, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Now they're not looking at his integrity. Now they're looking at his identity. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Son of the blessed? Well, the Son of the blessed is a way that they can honor God, they can honor the name of God and not commit blasphemy. They're they're maybe being a little bit too uh, protective. They say the Son of the blessed, that's a way to say, are you the Son of God? Jesus responds finally to them in verse 62. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying as he responds here is, yes, I am in fact the Son of God. He's saying, I came from heaven, and I'm going to go back to heaven. With this coming on the, on the clouds, he's basically saying, I'm appointed as judge Over all of the earth. If you think about Jesus riding on the clouds, it's not like just having a good time up there, like it's some sort of a roller coaster, Six Flags experience for him, and he can do that, and so he does. This idea that Jesus rides on the clouds really harkens back to the Son of Man, the prophecy of Daniel, speaking of the Son of Man coming and judging the earth, judging those who sin against God and do not do the will of the Father. And so, in essence, what Jesus is saying as he responds to the high priest of Israel is this. I'll be back. This isn't the last time that we're going to see each other in court, but the roles are going to be reversed when I come back. When I'm riding on the clouds and you're on the earth, you're going to find you in the dirt, right? He's saying, I will be back to judge you. He's saying, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And potentially even using the word I am is him saying he's underhandedly or not underhandedly but on the backside saying I am God I am Yahweh at any rate how did the chief priest how does the chief priest respond well look at verse 63 it says and the high priest tore his garments and said what further witnesses do we need you have heard this man's blasphemy what is your decision and they all condemned him as deserving death the high priest tore his garments. This is a way to show anguish. It's a way to show disgust. What further witnesses do we need? This man has blasphemed God. Well, what does blasphemy even mean? Well, we'll look at that in just a minute. At any rate, they denied his response. They rejected his true identity, and they claimed that he was deserving death. And so, his pure life, his impeccable, impeccable character, they've attacked it. They've demeaned it. They've dishonored it. They've moved on, changing tactics. They've now attacked his identity. Not the Son of God. You're a bl- lying against God. You're speaking ill of him. And they go on to dishonor his body. Verse 64, you have heard this, or you have heard his blasphemy, the high priest says, what is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him and saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This isn't blows of, this is punches to the face. And maybe they thought it was fair and right. Leviticus twenty-four sixteen does say this. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. This is connected with the third commandment that God gives to his people, that you honor his name, that you not take his name in vain. What does blasphemy mean? Well, one definition gives it this way. Blasphemy is slander. Blasphemy is disrespect expressed against God or the sacred It's characterized by irreverent or disrespectful speech. It involves cursing or insulting God, persons, places, or objects considered to be sacred. And so it's this defiant or impious acts uh, such as contempt for God or sacred things that can also be considered blasphemous. Here they had accused Jesus that he himself, God the Father, sending the Son, the Son being arrested, there dying for his church, he they say, has committed blasphemy. That's the very thing that they were committing against, or that they were committing against Jesus, really, to dishonor him, to call him a liar, to say that his integrity should be called into question and even to attack his body. Jesus here is being struck with blows, blow after blow, not just physical blows, but also blows against his integrity, against his identity as well. But even more than that, emotionally, He's not just getting struck in the face by these guards, but emotionally he's getting struck in the face by Peter. Because just in the courtyard below, we find our brother Peter denying Jesus, just as Jesus foretold that he would do. And so they're dishonoring Jesus because they despise Jesus. Peter is dishonoring Jesus, not because he despises Jesus, but because he loves himself In his own life, more than he loves Jesus himself. So it doesn't matter how you get there. Love for self or despising Jesus, dishonoring him is dishonoring him. It's the very thing that Peter promised he would never do. This isn't the main point this morning, but I would offer you this. Peter never saw this coming. It's easier to stand with Jesus when you think you're winning. It's easy to stand with Jesus when you're on top. It's easy to stand with Jesus when the sun is shining bright and the wind is at your back. It's easier to fight with Jesus to fight for Jesus when you're in the crowd. But when you're all by yourself, when the day is over and the night has come, when danger is all around you, when you're not in the garden, but you're in the courtyard. Surrounded. It's not so easy to follow Jesus. But here Mark has wonderfully recorded for us Peter's actions this night, and it's really an emotional scene. Peter has followed from a distance. He ran at first. He got away from Jesus, and now he's come back, and he's followed himself, maybe pulled his hat down. Maybe he's wearing a pair of sunglasses, collar up. He's following from a distance. The crowd comes into the courtyard of the high priest's house, He finds him a seat around the fire so he can still hear what's happening, but he can stay warm. And there Jesus is denied three times. Peter's Lord denied three times. And just as soon as he finishes the third denial, the rooster crows, just as Jesus had predicted. And after betraying Jesus in a sense, he has a negative emotional response. He hears the rooster crow. He's reminded of his Savior. His Savior had prophesied that this would take place. His Savior even prophesied that I'll meet you in Galilee. Now, it's a painful experience. Here we read that he weeps. Another gospel account says that he weeps bitterly. It's a painful experience for him. I find it interesting to compare the emotional response of betraying Jesus Judas Betraying Jesus and Peter's betrayal or denial. What's the difference between the two? We assume that Judas had some sort of remorse, regretted this action. He responds quite differently than Peter. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses ten through, or 8 through 10 give us a little idea of why. It says this, <clears throat> For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. It's Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. He had sent them a letter correcting them. They had sinned. There were sin in the camp, and he was correcting them. And he was pretty harsh with them. And he says, I see that I've grieved you, and that grieved me. He said, but only for a little while. Verse 9, he says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Because the grieving in your heart helped the Spirit, to, or the Spirit used it to, to ch- change your heart. He says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. I can't help but think that these verses are actually in Paul's mind as he's writing these out in his mind is maybe Judas and Peter. He sees the life of Judas. Judas also grieving brokenhearted that he had sinned against his master, and yet where did his worldly grief lead him? It led him to death, despondency. He ended his own life. And yet in contrast, we see Peter's godly grief. And how do we know it was godly? Because it led him to repent. At this point in the story, yeah, we don't know this, but we know that Jesus said that he would? He actually says, Peter, I've prayed for you. And when you repent, when you turn around, strengthen your brothers. Also, I've read the end of the book, so maybe you should as well and not wait till Easter. But at any rate, Jesus knew Peter would repent. He knew that he would turn again, and in fact, he did. But he still wept bitterly. He still had incredible grief in regards to that night. I wonder if Peter could do it all over again. I wonder if he, could, if he could go back. What would he do differently? What would he say? What would Peter tell us in regards this morning to Jesus' identity and Jesus' integrity and of Jesus' body? Would he honor Jesus or would he dishonor him? Well, I've kind of set you up, right? Well, we know exactly what Peter would say. Why? Because he has said it. The Spirit has recorded it for us and inspired it even. And so I want to take just a few moments this morning at the end of our time, on the second half of this sermon here. And I want you to see Peter's rebuttal, or Peter's address to these three instances, these three dishonorable acts that the Sanhedrin had uh, given against Jesus. And so, Peter's second chance regarding Jesus' integrity. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, we read this. It's, it's the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> Peter stands up. Many are gathered around. The Spirit has descended on the church. Really, it's born in that moment. Peter stands up, and what does he say? He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, though, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What's Peter's Christology as it relates to Jesus' sinless identity or integrity? Well, Peter wants to be clear that Jesus was betrayed by who? Lawless men. He was betrayed by lawless men. This is what Peter wants us to know. If Peter had been so bold that night as he was warming himself by the fire when he heard them impugning the character of God, the son, he would have stood and said this, but he wasn't there that night. He wasn't in that place. And yet, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, he was ready. He wouldn't miss this opportunity. He wants us to see this picture. Jesus was killed by lawless men. And if you had this uh, scale And Jesus were to be weighed by the law on one side, and the actual law were to be placed on the other side, how would it pan out? Would the law be heavier, or would Jesus, or would they be equal? That's kind of the picture here. How will this scale work out? Well, Jesus is, or Peter is standing up and saying, Hey, Jesus did not get a fair trial according to the law. No, these men were lawless. When they were weighing Jesus against the law, they didn't use the law. They used something else. They used deceit, Peter wants us to know. They were lawless. They went outside the law. And that's how they attacked our Lord and Savior. That's just a little bit of helping us to see what Peter understood Jesus' true integrity to be like. But he doesn't leave us any doubt. In First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, that would be a great scripture to write down. And think about this, the apostle that we've read about these last few months as he denies the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he, turn, he then turns and he writes First and Second Peter. So it'd be really interesting for you to do a, a study, a character study on this guy, Peter. But in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1, 1 Peter, this is what we read. Knowing that you were transformed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Peter's saying, Hey, you have been redeemed. You've been purchased back, church, and you've not been purchased back by some piece of gold or silver, but you've been purchased with the precious blood of Christ, that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose blood was without spot or blemish. He's speaking of Jesus' integrity. of his character. character. Relating to the law, Jesus was blameless. He was spotless, without blemish. Peter had the opportunity to set the record straight regarding Jesus' integrity. He had kept his mouth shut that night. He denied that he even knew this criminal Jesus. But in 1 Peter and Acts 2, we see he takes the opportunity to strengthen the church and to correct it. So he speaks of Jesus' integrity, but what of Jesus' identity? Does does the apostle Peter have anything to say about Jesus' identity? Well, he does. In fact, Jesus uh, is is thought of so high by Peter that, that Peter has some of the richest and highest Christology in all the New Testament. That means we get our clearest, highest teaching about who Jesus was and his divine nature from Peter. What does Peter say? If he had the opportunity to, to address the, the chief priest that night, if he hadn't been so cowardly, if he hadn't loved his own life more than he loved the honor of his Lord, he might would have stood up and said something like what we find in 2 Peter chapter 1 again, but this time verses 16 and 18. This is what Peter says to the church and to us, what he would have said, I think, if he had given the chance again to speak to the Sanhedrin. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Basically, what Peter is saying here in chapter 2, verses 1 and 16 through 18, he's, he's, he's saying, Hey, we've given you our report. If you want to reject Jesus' identity as the Son of God, you'll do it to your own harm. I was there, I heard the voice from heaven, I saw the dove descend. We were eyewitnesses. The Father in heaven gave honor to the Son. The honor of Jesus in heaven was coming down and was demonstrated as honor here on earth. And Peter is saying, hey, I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. In other words, he's saying, he could have been saying to those chief priests, scribes, that Jesus was the son of God and he was so sure of it. If you're gonna kill him for it, you're gonna have to kill me too because I believe the exact same thing. I saw it. I was an eyewitness. If you're not convinced from that that Peter believed that Jesus was the divine Son of God, then to listen to what he says in the introduction of that same chapter, of that same letter. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is what we hear: Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, of, of our God and Savior. Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I want to underline two things in those three verses. One, Peter says, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does Peter think Jesus to be God? The second person in the Trinity, the, the Son of God? Indeed, he does. He even says in verse 3, his divine power, his God-given power, his God power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so yes, Peter would be saying, again, if he had, not been given the chance. He truly is the son of God and if you're going to kill him for blasphemy, you might as well get me as well because I believe that he is the son of God. Some of you might say, well, what was Peter to do in that night? Was he to run and hide? Well, of course, the Lord used that for the spread of the church. He used that to glorify himself. He used that for Peter to even see that as he denied Jesus and as he wasn't faithful to him, that God through the Son was still faithful to Peter. And so God used it. But at the same time, did Peter sin against his Lord? Did he dishonor him? Yes, he did. Did he stand idly by why his master was being blasphemed against? Yes, he did. But now we know, had he been given the chance, he would not do that again. And now even through his Scripture, through the Scriptures that the the Spirit has given through him, we can see that we can be strengthened as well. Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. And so in a sense, we see Peter in other places. After his denial, he, he, he defends the integrity of Jesus. He defends the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. But finally, I want to look at this idea of the body of Jesus. Now, Jesus, Jesus wasn't attacked by Peter. Peter did pull out his sword, and he lopped off the, the, the high priest's servant ear, right? He didn't get, he didn't get Jesus. Peter, Peter never struck Jesus with his hand. And so how could, what are, what are Peter's thoughts, though, against Jesus or, or against or towards his body? Well, let me offer this. Under the great threat of persecution, Peter writes these words to the church of his day, also found and 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. If you if you have a copy of God's word, I would invite you to just flip over there for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Again, remember, the writer of this book, 1 Peter chapter 3, is the one who denied Jesus Himself. And as it relates to Jesus' body, here's the, here's the frank nature of it. Peter loved his own body more than he loved Jesus. And that's why he ran. That's why he denied Jesus. Because he knew that Jesus was the Son of God. He knew that they were blaspheming Jesus while they accused the Son of God of blasphemy. He could have stood up, but he didn't. Why? Because he loved his own body more than he loved Jesus, his Lord. If Peter could go back, if he could go back if he could say something different, what would he say? Well, I think he'd say something very similar to what we find in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Here's what we read. Peter's strengthening the church. He's saying this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, he's saying, if God is for you, who can be against you? And then he says, well, but there are some that will be against you. Because look what he says in verse 14. But even if you suffer, For righteousness' sake. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I want you to think about that. We don't have enough time to really unpack this this morning. But this will be a great opportunity for you to get alone with God this week and look at this passage and consider the testimony of Peter. Now it's changed. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying there's real danger in life. He's speaking to the church, and by extension, he's speaking to us. He's saying there's real danger in life. You might really suffer for righteousness' sake. You might really suffer as you follow the Lord and Savior. He says this, but do not have any fear. Do not fear what they can do to the body. Do not fear what they can do to your own integrity, testimony, and reputation. Do not fear what they can do to your identity. It's secure in Christ. He says instead, no, do not fear, but in your hearts, honor. In your hearts, honor. Do not despise, honor Christ the Lord. And honor him as what? Honor him as holy Honor him him in his rightful place as God. And in turn, he says, Always be prepared. For what? Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I believe Peter was asked, in a way, that night, that very question Are you with Jesus? Do you have a hope in this man? Have you been following him? Is your heart aligned with his philosophy and teaching? Peter denied it. He wasn't ready. He wasn't prepared. He dishonored the Lord. But now in turn, what is Peter saying to us? He's encouraging us to not consider our own bodies and our own lives as more precious than Jesus'. what he's saying is, hey, Jesus suffered. He suffered for you. And because in his body, he suffered for you, you also should be willing to suffer with him. I think what Peter's saying is, hey, I wasn't ready last time. Church, I wasn't ready, but I will be next time. And I want you all to know you need to be ready too. You need to be ready to give an answer, to honor the Lord in your heart and give an answer when the time comes. Verse 17, I think is spoken from experience. I know that it is. Verse 17 of 1 Peter 3, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil or to avoid evil. It's better to die standing with Jesus than it is to live having denied him. That's what what Peter's saying. It's better to die standing with Jesus than to live having denied him. I, I know that you can trust this. Why? Because Peter has walked that. He's lived that. He said, wouldn't it be better to live? Yeah, Peter's saying, no, it wouldn't. I denied my Savior. It crushed me. The way that I dishonored him, I, in that moment, I believe the Spirit of God allowed Peter to see into heaven a little bit more, to see back to that holy mountain, the honor that had been bestowed on Jesus. And he realized that he had dishonored his master. And the honor that had been given the Father, or from the Father to the Son in heaven was not taking place on earth, at least not in Peter's life. And he says it's terrible. He says it's, it's better to suffer instead. It's better to suffer for doing good. It's better to suffer standing with Jesus. So Peter's saying, I wish I had a do-over maybe. I wish I could go back and do all this over again. And we see that if he could go back, what would he say? Well, he would tell us a little bit more about Jesus' integrity. Oh, he's the spotless lamb. I stand with John. He takes away the sins of the world. Well, Peter, if you could go back, what would you say in regards to Jesus' identity? Oh, he is the Son of God. Not only is he our Messiah, but he is our great God and Savior. This is what Peter would say. And finally, what would Peter say about Jesus' body? Oh, I wish I would have honored his body more than I honored my own. Given the chance, I'd not do that again. It's interesting, our master tells Peter after his resurrection, he meets them in Galilee and he's there with Peter. He's talking with with his disciples and he says, Peter, there's coming a day, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, Peter, there's coming a day where you're gonna go somewhere where you don't wanna go. He kind of locks in with Peter, locks eyes, I imagine. And, and there's no communication error here. Jesus is clearly communicating with his eyes and with his mouth exactly what's going to take place in Peter's life. And Peter knows he's speaking of the cross. He says, Peter, you, you used to be taken as a kid where you wanted to go, but there's coming a day where you're going to go and be led where you do not want to go. And he also says that your, your hands are actually going to be stretched out. There's no, there's no mistaken here. Peter knows that he will experience the same death that his Lord and Savior had experienced and been resurrected from. It's interesting. We don't know this to be true. We don't know exactly what took place, but we do know Peter was crucified. And church history, tradition tells us that Peter was actually crucified in Rome and he was crucified upside down. What does that tell us about Peter. Well, we can maybe just kind of guess what well, tells us this, that Peter did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord and Savior. And so if that legend is true, if the tradition bears and rings true, then we see that Peter actually did have a chance to go back and not set things right, not redeem his own life, but be, a, be used by God to redeem his own testimony. Instead of being the guy who denied Jesus, he's the guy that was given a second chance. And and when he was given the chance to recant, to turn away, to deny his Lord and Savior, and in a sense to despise and dishonor him, he didn't take that opportunity. No, he died just in line with what he said to the church. Who is there to harm you? This is a man who was crucified upside down for following Jesus. Who's there to harm you? If you're zealous for what is good, but even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He taught us as well. What did he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've seen this morning in the life of Peter, as the heavens have opened up before us, even as we've opened the scriptures, that Jesus is honored in heaven. May he be honored on on earth as well. And may he be honored in your hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, we celebrate this morning that you've revealed to us the honor of Jesus, your Son, the Lamb of God who you did not withhold from us. We see that he, before time began, as part, of the, as part of the Trinity, became obedient to the covenant of redemption, he became obedient unto death, in a sense, crucified before the even, even the world began. We see that because of his obedience, because of his glory, Father, we see in Revelation 4 that you the one who the, scri- or who the saints and the elders and the, the creatures declare is worthy of honor, we see you in, in Jesus' presence, you allowing him also to receive honor. Why? Because you have honored him. You've raised him above, above all things and you've called us to do the same. You've called us to honor him with our lives. So Father, we ask that you would cause this church to honor Jesus. Father, we pray that we would lift him up and that as we do, as we raise up this perfect, spotless lamb whose blood was shed for the sin of many, we pray that he would be honored as those who are far from you are drawn near. Father, we asked you to meet us this morning. I believe that you did. You've opened your scriptures to us and you've met us here and we praise you. We ask that you would bless us as we now turn and respond and praise We ask these things in the name of Jesus.